1: Long-time listeners, you know the drill. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving members. Just search for the show's name. Let me take this opportunity to thank one of our Patreon patrons by name, or, more accurately, by pseudonym before proceeding further. This particular listener asked me to create a pseudonym for him or her, so to ensure that person knows we're talking about them, we'll use their real-life initials of AR for our new creation. And with that, we'll clue you in on something. Autonomous Rapscallion has been sneaking into hotel rooms, finding the complimentary Bibles, and replacing all instances of God with Joe Pesci as an homage to the late George Carlin. If you'd like your name or your pseudonym to join the role of honor at the top of a future show, just sign up at patreon.com forward slash theparanoidstrain at the $5 tier. We thank you kindly, both for listening and for supporting. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line. Tell us what you think of the show. We're open to suggestions, criticisms, and recipes. Send them all to theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay. Let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. World Order topic, we should at least acknowledge that one Glenn Beck tried to create a New World Order panic for the new century with his obsession,
2: which many other loons shared,
1: with a seemingly innocuous declaration by the UN called Agenda 21. In a sense, this appears to be a sort of thematic bridge between New World Order proper, which had its heyday pre-9-11, and full-on Q delusions, which of course date to the Trump administration. So let's just briefly,
2: for once in his life, This time, when he says brief, he actually means brief.
1: Let's see if I can do this. Agenda 21 was, well, I guess is, a UN resolution.
2: (laughs) A non-binding UN resolution.
1: Yeah, that's important to keep in mind. I mean, famously, even actual binding UN resolutions may or may not have any impact, depending on whether anyone actually pays attention to them, and whether or not any of the big boy countries decides to veto them before they can go through. But if U.N. resolutions strongly condemning this, that, or the other are kind of an international laughingstock half the time, imagine how toothless a non-binding resolution is. That's Agenda 21.
2: Sort of like showing up to an old crush's wedding, waving a well-worn middle school do-you-like-me note with a yes buck checked when the preacher asks if anyone objects to this union.
1: It's similar. But that didn't stop Glenn Beck from going screaming and rending clothes So about the threat it posed to American sovereignty.
2: Younger listeners, Glenn Beck's conservative star has greatly waned since he was fired from his popular Fox News show, a fate we devoutly wish on Tucker Carlson in the coming months. But at one time, Beck was a sort of less racist, more teary Mormon version of Tucker who constantly warned fearful viewers that the world as they knew it was seconds from descending into a God-hating Nazi communist hellscape, thanks to whatever innocuous trend or conspiracist screed he had most recently stumbled upon.
1: Yeah, and he was way more fun to watch. Let's listen briefly to the way that he introduced this topic on his Fox show.
3: One of the main reasons for these same old tired ideas being revitalized is because those pushing globalism and government control on a global level have mastered the art of hiding it in plain sight and then just dismissing it as a joke. A great example would be this. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah, that kind of sounds like Fahrenheit 451. I don't think that ended well. Agenda 21. They refer to it as sustainable development. It has been adopted by more than 178 governments. I believe there's only 191 on the planet. The United Nations had their big conference on the environment and development in Rio back in 1992 and that's when everybody jumped on board. But it sounds harmless. It's only Agenda 21. Yeah. Yeah, go look this one up because it's not so harmless. And it really something? You have to dig pretty deep into this thing. I mean, cuz look at all this. It doesn't get spooky until about here. Just section 1. Social and Economic Dimensions, which talks about the redistribution of wealth, changing consumption patterns, promoting health, I love this one, change population, and sustainable settlement.
2: Come on, Jess. You promised me that for once you wouldn't spend 20 goddamn minutes on a digression, and I believed you, and I told the nice people that, and now it sounds like you're going to make me a liar.
1: No, 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 I'll behave. It's just so goddamn delicious. Okay, so to synopsize rather than go point to point through Beck's fugue state, this non binding resolution suggests all the countries of the world should craft policies that acknowledge that the third world has gotten shafted for the past couple of centuries, and it might be nice if our policies going forward were a little more pro poor countries. And again, it has no enforcement mechanism whatsoever. But Beck believes that the evil New World Order folks are using this as a Trojan horse to make your kids eat vegetarian lunch at school and that your local municipality is about to turn your house over to Somali immigrants, especially if you're white.
2: He didn't say those things exactly, but they're certainly in the ballpark.
1: I guess I need hardly point out that none of this is true, but the thing I like best about it is that The Daily Show, back in its salad days, recognized Beck's didactic, emotional, off-the-rails, bizarro approach to conveying non-fact facts was maybe the ripest target for parody in all of the 20-teens, and so host John Stewart dedicated the lion's share of several episodes to a spectacularly effective rendition of the Glenn Beck style.
3: You ask anybody who really looks at global politics and they will tell you China is the new goal. Why do you think there's so many Maoists hanging around the White House? <laughs>
0: See, isn't it interesting that they go to China? It turns out the progressives advocating for government regulations on toxins in water and our children's toys turns us into China. The very country that has been putting toxins in water and our children's toys. It's so ingenious, it almost doesn't... It's so ingenious it almost doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> this is Glenn's blackboard, so we have to play by Glenn's rules, which are, if you subscribe to an idea, you also subscribe to that idea's ideology, and to every possible negative consequence that that ideology remotely implies when you carry it to absurd extremes, <laughs> for instance. Progressives, if you believe in a minimum safety net for the nation's neediest, you believe in total and absolute government control. So. If you believe that faith provides a strong moral tentpost for a nation's foundation that could only lead to totalitarian theocracy. <laughs> but, 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 John, that's crazy. <laughs> that can't be right because there would be all kinds of verdonkulous embedded clues. You're absolutely right.
1: <laughs> and, of course, Stuart brought this persona back out for an encore when Beck was fired from Fox for being too crazy. And we enjoyed a brief period where he thought that the world might get a little saner. Back in. What was that? Oh. 2011. No dice then.
0: By the way, Glenn Beck still had the third highest rated show in cable news. Well, John, maybe Fox News thought it would be useful to pick some random talk radio host rehashing the same tired old John Birch Society conspiracy theories to seed ultra-conservative viewpoints into the news cycle while making the rest of the network seem centrist by comparison. But he then began to believe his own messianic delusions and became a giant pain in the ass. So they dropped his ass. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah, that's what happened.
1: Back in 2012, Beck published one of his many literary efforts on the subject of Agenda 21, a novel of the all-too-imminent future titled Agenda 21.
2: There's one of them book trailers that you see these days on YouTube for this gem, but it's got no dialogue. Just ominous music and the image of impoverished, multiracial, former Americans lined up to receive their tiny morsels of future soil and green food, before an elderly and presumably useless citizen is fed, headfirst and alive, into an environmentally sound crematorium, maybe to be transformed into soil and green equivalent? Regardless, Jessard's just going to read excerpts of the book description from Amazon over the soundtrack to that trailer I just described. It's an audio-audio extravaganza.
1: Just a generation ago, this place was called
0: America. Now, after the worldwide implementation of a UN-led program called Agenda 21, citizens have two primary goals in the new republic, to create clean energy and to create new human life. Those who cannot do either are of no use to society. This bleak and barren existence is all that 18-year-old Emmeline has ever known. She dutifully walks her energy board daily and accepts all male pairings assigned to her by the authorities.
1: With the authorities closing in and nowhere to run, Emmeline embarks on an audacious plan to save her family and expose the Republic. But is she already too late? Hopefully it's obvious that this New World Order panic was yet another situation where free-floating anxiety latches onto some minor and passing thing and turns it into a threat to life as we know it.
2: Or to put it in another way, QAnon with a different accent.
1: But to transition to our next section, let's listen back to Glenn Beck's original Agenda 21 freakout and hear what he has to say about a particular political dynasty and its relationship to his panic of the moment. It starts to make
3: more sense when you see who's responsible
1: for all of this. First, Gro
3: Harlem Brundtland. I love her. I don't really know how to say her name, because I don't know anybody who names their child with the first name G.R.O. Gro. She's also really close friends with the Clintons. Oh, they get along so great. Where is she? Oh, there she is. Yahoo! Right here. There she is. She's also active in the Clintons' global initiative. She's there for the annual meetings. <laughs> yeah. She was there when Hillary received a German Media Award in 2005. And here's Hillary wishing her dear friend happy 70th birthday watch. Here she
0: is. As a former environment minister, a longtime advocate for sustainable development, and most recently as a United Nations special envoy for climate change, Mm. you helped set the stage for intensive diplomatic and scientific work being done on this issue today.
1: Yada, yada, yada.
3: Okay.
1: Ah, the Clintons. It always, always seems to come back to the Clintons, doesn't it? of us who were around back in 92.
2: And even Jesuit wasn't old enough to vote in the first election Bill won, though if he could have voted for Bubba, he would have.
1: Yeah, and he and his wife were definitely outsized pop culture figures at that point, but I don't think anybody in the early 90s could possibly have foreseen how much and how long these two people would be on the stage of American politics. To be fair, Ronald Reagan had a seismic impact on how Americans voted and saw their government, and until Trump remade the party in his own garish image, All GOP hopefuls had to swear fealty to the Gipper's legacy to have a hope of attaining national power. But together, Bill and Hillary were either actual candidates or casting a shadow over every single election between 1992 and 2020, with potentially the sole exception of 2012.
2: Though if you count the Republicans' attempt to leverage Clinton's role as Secretary of State and the Benghazi disaster into a defeater for Obama's second term bit, you could even argue that there was a Clinton in the middle there as well.
1: Aside from the Roosevelts, it would be hard to find a couple in the past century who had more political impact on the nation. And it all started back in the 1990s when the relatively unknown governor of Arkansas ran a dark horse candidacy for president. If you weren't there, it was a weird election cycle. In 1991, coming off the wild, swift USA, USA success of the first Iraq war, incumbent George H.W. Bush, that's Bush 41, not Bush 43, seemed like such a shoe-in for re-election that SNL ran a sketch about the impending Democratic primary titled, Campaign 92, The Race to Avoid Being the Guy Who Loses to Bush.
3: Campaign 92, The Race to Avoid Being the Guy Who Loses to Bush.
2: Welcome to this, the first of a series of debates among the five leading Democrats who are trying to avoid being forced by their party into a hopeless race against President George Bush. (laughs) Each, of course, is under enormous pressure to be the chump who will take on the futile task of running against this very, very popular incumbent. They are Senator... Notice the presidency was still such a presumed sausage fest that they just went ahead and said guy, not person.
1: The point is, Bush at that point seemed undefeatable. Then the economy went into recession, a wild card named Ross Perot got into the race, stealing some votes and plenty of attention from the president, and a young Sax player whose race laser focused on the internal slogan, It's the economy, stupid, won the day and was sworn in January of nineteen ninety-three. But from the fucking second the Clintons hit the national headlines, it seems that political enemies from their time in the governor's mansion in Arkansas were already screeching about the couple's corruption, perfidy, and in the biggest stretch of the imagination, the trail of dead bodies they had supposedly left behind them. From my perspective as the son of a moderately Republican household in the Deep South, Clinton and his policies were a breath of fresh air. The fact that he was about the same age as my dad, yet seemed way way cooler than my pops, only endeared him to me further, which made me even more confused at the seeming tidal wave of conspiracy theorizing about how he and Hillary were basically the second coming of the Goebbelses. By the way, I'm not trying to say I'm somehow above the idea of dismissing and vilifying political opponents. I liked Clinton back in my 20s because he seemed smart, and while H.W. was no dummy, he seemed a little out of touch.
2: Those of you of a certain age will recall the grocery store scanner thing, which made him look like a fossil to young Americans at the time, however unfairly it was spun.
1: But I didn't identify with Bill on the I-want-to-fuck-anything-that-moves-to-hell-with-my-marriage-vows aspect. I subsequently hated George W. Bush out of all proportion with my deep and fundamental disagreements with nearly everything he proposed or enacted while in office. And my distaste was not, if I'm honest, mostly about the hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths he unleashed with his tragically stupid Iraq war policy.
2: Jessard is sad to admit that, like most Americans, he was slow to realize how catastrophic that war was
1: going to be, by the way. No, I couldn't stand him because I hated, to quote the late 20s, early 30s Jesuit of the time, his stupid monkey face.
2: Jessard maintains that Bush looks like a chimp, but has fewer language skills.
1: Then Obama came along. And although I had many disagreements with his policies and approach to political negotiation, his failure to push harder on areas that were, in my opinion, good for the health of our republic, offering a healthcare public option, for example, demanding more concessions from banks during the financial crisis, I just so admired the way he carried himself and represented my country that, in my mind, he could kind of do no wrong. I admitted all that to note my priors going into this topic and to state for the record that we're all human and we all have our weak spots. I had... and kind of still have a straight guy crush on Obama that makes me overlook his flaws, and I still hate W's monkey face. Clearly then, I can totally understand why some conservative people in the 90s just couldn't fucking stand Bill and Hillary Clinton. And there are plenty of reasons to hold both of them up to skeptical consideration.
2: Which, rest assured, we'll get to.
1: But what I'm saying is, even as we admit that political biases and feelings can run deep, the response to the Clintons seemed out of all proportion to their political assent.
2: At least at the time. Now this is just the way things are in American politics.
1: Exactly. There wasn't a precedent, in my experience, for this kind of political vitriol in the public discourse. Not to speak ill of the recently dead, but the horrible, bloviating, racist, sexist piece of shit Rush Limbaugh, whose national star really rose on the back of Clinton hatred, briefly got an actual TV show out of it, in spite of the fact that he's one of the least telegenic humans who ever lived.
2: Real-life example of the humor on Limbaugh's TV show? Mentioning there was a cute kid in the White House, then showing a still of the Clintons' dog. He corrected his mistake with an awkward picture of the then-12-year-old Chelsea Clinton, clearly implying that she was a dog. A 12-year-old. What a knee-slapper. What a fucking asshole.
1: I know this is standard practice on the internet these days, but trust me, on a nationally syndicated televised entertainment program, was beyond the pale in the early 90s. And of course, given Rush's love of spreading Clinton-related conspiracy theories, that moment can really be considered among the least of his offenses. Clinton hatred, the kind that's not based on good reasons, but rather the made-up ones, seems to be one of the through lines that connected the conspiracy-minded 90s to the QAnon era. So to try and get a handle on it, we used a book that had been sitting on our shelf for six long years, waiting for us. Conspiracy Theories, Secrecy and Power in American Culture, by Mark Fenster. What mainstream news readers and listeners at the time may remember most clearly about the Clinton conspiracy theories of the 90s is the Vince Foster murder story. Foster, a deputy White House counsel and personal friend of the Clintons, found himself the target of negative press concerning an early Clinton political scandal.
2: There were tons of these at the time, both real Clinton shady shit and made-up anti-Clinton shady shit.
1: Unfortunately, Foster took this exposure really hard. The negative press exacerbated his existing clinical depression, and he eventually took his own life in a D.C. park.
2: Or that's what the Clintons wanted you to think.
1: Almost before the body was cold, politically motivated rumors started flying about the many reasons why the Clintons actually had their friend Vince murdered. Four years later, Ken Starr's independent probe, the fourth such investigation into the matter, concluded, like all the rest, that the cause of death was suicide. If you think that deterred the people who were certain that this was a Clinton hit job, well, you haven't listened to this show very closely, I can tell you that. Fenster does some nice work talking about how the president's confusion on this topic made it impossible for him to understand the truly dedicated conspiracists. Quoting Clinton responding to Larry King in early 94, who asked if there were any new developments in the case, he said the following, Dana, I'm gonna need a Bill Clinton impression here.
2: God damn it. I don't think we know any more than in the beginning, because I just really don't believe there's anything more to know. Acting.
1: Fenster, whose book is a fascinating look at the hermeneutics of conspiracy.
2: That is, theory and interpretation of conspiracy thinking. And I'll make him stop using postmodern deconstruction words.
1: Cross my heart. Clinton's statement, there isn't any more to know, is a fundamentally anti-conspiracist hermit. Sorry, theory of interpretation because it presumes there's a limit to interpretation. But as we all know from years following the Mobius Strip rabbit trail thoughts of conspiracists, the interpretation never ends. To quote Fenster,
2: Clinton's assumption can gain no purchase within a system that respects no limits in its assumption about the secret treachery of true political power. There is always something more to know about an alleged conspiracy.
1: Exactly. There's always more to know, even when there isn't. Which, of course, means that, again quoting Fenster, The president is trapped in a circular, endless game in which every declaration of innocence and every piece of evidence put forward to exonerate him becomes interpreted as further proof of his guilt. There were conspiracy theories about previous presidents in the modern era, certainly. Kennedy somehow selling the country out to the communists, for some reason, as the Birchers believed, is a great example. But even the lamest of lamestream news publications at the time noticed something different in the Clinton case. Fenster quotes the title of a bewildered U.S. News and World Report article from the era. Whatever it is, Bill Clinton likely did it. The piece surveyed the vast array of evidence-free accusations that were floating around, aided not only by Clinton's political opponents in Congress, but also some people whose axes started grinding, as we noted, back in his gubernatorial salad days. Which brings us to the two most important pieces of anti-Clinton conspiracy from the era, the independent documentary film The Clinton Chronicles, and the never yet out of circulation, constantly growing, internet list turned self published book, The Clinton Body Count. The Clinton Chronicles was the big one, really. This documentary, which was produced by some of the former governor's apparently numerous enemies in Arkansas and released shortly after his victory in 1992, was in some ways a continuation of the long and proud history of American political smears. But the combination of actual scandals that were already dogging the president,
2: Some of which, like the Paula Jones sexual harassment suit, were first presented in this documentary and had real-world consequences. In the Jones case, Clinton settling out of court.
1: Yeah, the real stuff, of which there was plenty. In this lurid screed, they combined that with some absolutely irresponsible extrapolations to convict Clinton of everything from sexual assault.
2: Again, that one's pretty credible.
1: To cocaine addiction, to conspiracy to traffic drugs for South American cartels, to a wide variety of murders. The Birchers, as we have seen, were eager to tar JFK.
2: Another scandal-prone, moderately liberal president.
1: With just these sorts of accusations. But the wide distribution and relative professionalism of the production made the Clinton Chronicle something unprecedented in modern American politics. And of course, it arrived just as the modern conservative news echo chamber was being constructed.
2: With again, Rush Limbaugh leading the way.
1: Now, of course, we're used to every presidential and even off-year election cycle marking the release of numerous well-funded, competently made, almost totally misleading docu-hit pieces, from the famous anti-Hillary doc that eventually led to the infamous Supreme Court Citizens United ruling, to Dinesh D'Souza's numerous completely discredited documentaries about first Obama and then the Biden administrations, to the famous Swift Boat Veterans for Truth attack on John Kerry. The right wing is prepared to produce these things forever, providing endless talking points and grist for the fever swamps where lies and half truths eventually are manufactured into total delusions like QAnon. So, nearly 30 years on from its premiere, I thought it'd be a good idea to review this prototype documentary to see how it sowed the seeds that would eventually grow into Q.
2: Also, he watched it, so you don't have to. You're welcome.
1: The second Let's the tide. The paranoia leaps off the screen from the very opening disclaimer, which lets you know that powerful people don't want you watching this important film, US voter of 1994. Okay, okay, we get it. We're watching Dot that the lamestream media doesn't want us to see. Take us to the good stuff, which comes with our first voiceover, an introduction to the 42nd president. On January
0: 20th, 1993, William Jefferson Clinton became the 42nd president of the United States. At the time, most Americans were not aware of the extent of Clinton's criminal background nor were they aware of the media blackout which kept this information from the public. As state attorney general and later governor, Bill Clinton in 12 years achieved absolute control over the political, legal, and financial systems of Arkansas. As president, he would attempt to do the same with the nation by bringing members of his inner circle with him to Washington. The hijacking of America was underway, and its impact on future generations would be incalculable.
2: So, Clinton is an evil, all-powerful criminal who is taking over the United States with its cronies. I am certain that those behind this film were just as concerned about every other president, Democratic or Republican, who brought his political circle with him when he came to D.C.
1: Clinton is different, Dana. He's the devil. Sorry, but it's true. After all, he was basically raised in the pits of hell, also known as Hot Springs, Arkansas.
0: Bill Clinton was born in hope and, of course, raised in Hot Springs. They had open bawdy houses over there at the time, and they had open gambling at the time. But Clinton grew up in that that atmosphere, that different atmosphere of hot springs. If it felt good, you did it.
1: If you weren't already clued into the fact that those behind this film pretty much think Bill Clinton is a grown-up version of that kid from The Omen, that last quote seals the deal. What follows are a bunch of complaints about how he doled out favors to cronies, bent rules, ran roughshod over those who tried to investigate his malfeasance, had only a passing acquaintance with telling people the truth, etc. Which, again, probably some of it's true, some of it's exaggerated, some of it's made up, at least in this podcaster's evaluation. But two features really set this film apart. The first is its obsession with proving that Clinton was a huge cokehead in thrall to the cartel. And the second is the aforementioned Clinton body count, which had its origins in this very film before going on to publication in a variety of printed and internet formats over the years. First, the cocaine thing. Chronicles features a number of witnesses who swear they saw Bill, his 'er ne'er-do-well brother Roger, and a host of cronies snorting booger sugar at wild orgy parties throughout his decade-long tenure as Arkansas governor. The fact that they suggest he was doing the Bolivian marching powder at wild parties where he hooked up with a number of women not his wife lends credibility to the story. It's not hard to imagine a young bill showing up at any soiree that advertised available, willing newbiles. But outside of his enemies, it's hard to find credible sources suggesting that Clinton's addictions ever extended beyond poonhoundery to substances. Clinton Chronicles is larded with accusers though, and goes well beyond suggesting that Clinton and cronies used and shared their tootski with young women. After everybody left, I would stick around as if I were working
0: on the annual report. That would give me access to all the documents to make copies of them all. For about two months, I watched accounts accumulate money. At the end of the month, they zero-balanced. They're laundering drug money. There were $100 million a month in cocaine coming in and out of Arkansas. They had a problem. They were doing so much money in cocaine, $100 You You create a problem in a little state like Arkansas. How do you clean $100 million a month?
1: Those of a certain age will recognize that reference to the Rose Law Firm as the legal outfit that a young Ms. Rodham Clinton worked for during her husband's governorship, and the place where they met some scandal-ridden members of the eventual Clinton administration, including the eventually convicted Webster Hubble and the tragic figure Vince Foster.
2: It's worth noting now, by the way, that the Clintons for their many falls were the subject of a number of extremely hostile and thorough investigations by both the Republican Congress and the then infamous Kenneth Starr. He who uncovered the Monica Lewinsky affair while ostensibly investigating an unrelated scandal, the whitewater real estate controversy, which doesn't really directly concern us here. But the point is, if the Clintons or the Rose Law Firm were actually laundering drug money, a lot of Republicans would have been very happy to prove it. But they didn't. It was an obsession, though. Sort of a Hunter Biden's laptop of the old millennium's waning days.
1: Here's where things get weird.
2: Like, legit weird in a mostly coincidental
1: way. There are, in fact, three different fascinating, relatively plausible stories involving drugs or accusations of drug violence, all centered around the airport in Mina, Arkansas, a tiny town that loomed weirdly large in the 80s. The first strand has to do with Barry Seal, a former TWA pilot who by the late 70s was smuggling huge volumes of the white stuff into the States from Columbia in small planes flying under the radar. He eventually was caught, turned DEA informant, and was assassinated by the cartel. But for our purposes, the most interesting thing about him was that to avoid official notice, he started using the Mina airport to maintain and repair his fleet of small planes.
2: Meaning Mina was his US smuggling hub?
1: No, as it turns out, Seal dropped the coke into Louisiana swamps from the air. He only used the Mina airport for maintenance, never landed with the drugs themselves on the planes.
2: Well, that's a pretty lame part of the story, Jesuit.
1: Fair enough, but that same airport has been more or less credibly linked over the years to CIA efforts to arm the Contras and spy on the Sandinistas in the war-torn nation of Nicaragua. Supposedly, they used Tiny Mina Airport to launch black ops flights, sending guns and taking pictures down south while avoiding the prying eyes of government or press oversight.
2: We should note that the CIA's own internal investigation exonerated the agency of these allegations in 1996, and no smoking gun has ever been uncovered. But we're officially going to allow you to be strainiacs in good standing and still believe there might be something fishy going on, this being the CIA and all.